You're listening to On Attachment, a place to learn about how attachment shapes the way we experience relationships and where you'll gain the guidance, knowledge, and practical tools to overcome insecurity and build healthy, thriving relationships. I'm your host, relationship coach, Stephanie Rigg, and I'm really glad you're here. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On Attachment. For today's episode, I am so excited to be joined by Julie Manano, who many of you will know as the brains and the heart behind the hugely popular Instagram account, The Secure Relationship. Julie is a couples therapist and she's just published her first book, Secure Love, which is now out and available. Julie is such an incredible source of wisdom on all things attachment and by far my favorite content creator in this area. So I was so, so delighted to have her on the show and I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you, which is all about how couples can use an understanding of themselves and attachment and these dynamics to overcome the cycles that they get stuck in and how you can really start building bridges towards a more secure love with one another. So I have no doubt that this conversation will be hugely helpful for so many of you. And I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Julie, welcome. It's so great to have you. Hi, Stephanie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I absolutely want to talk about your new book, which I'm very excited to receive and read when it comes out. Uh, But before we jump into that, I would really love, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening follow you online, your account, and appreciate your content as much as I do. Um, Something that I really value in your work is that you do such a great job at articulating the the fears and the vulnerabilities that sit underneath the attachment styles and the behaviors that we see outwardly, which it might, it's easy to be critical of or judgmental of some of the ways that these fears and vulnerabilities manifest outwardly, particularly when we're in relationship with someone and we're, you know, on either side of that. Oh yeah. It's so hard. Maybe you could share for people. I mean, I think most people listening will be familiar with each of the attachment styles, Mm -hmm. but kind of going a layer deeper Mm -hmm. and sharing like what are some of those deeper fears, which oftentimes I think one of the beauties of your content is some of the things you put words to are things that people might not necessarily be consciously aware of uh, in terms of their own, you know, what is driving their behavior. So maybe you could... Just give a little bit of a feel for what sits underneath a lot of those behaviors for each of the insecure attachment Mm -hmm. styles. Well, one thing that comes to mind is when we talk about anxious attachment, uh, you know, most people are kind of familiar with the idea that anxious attachment comes from this fear of abandonment. And when we hear the word abandonment, our minds just sort of go right to physical abandonment, right? Which can be a real fear. For someone with an anxious attachment, just that physical distance uh, and, you know, not having lots of contact with their partner through the phone or through text or however, uh, because that physical proximity helps them feel safe. Like if, if you're right there in front of me, I have this, you know, sense of safety in my body that you're not gone, right? Um, but there are also a lot of people with anxious attachment who actually 
don't really mind not being physically with their partner all the time. And what they actually fear is emotional abandonment, which is probably a bigger piece of the puzzle for, for a lot of people, which is, you know, emotional abandonment is feeling emotionally validated, getting messages that your emotions are too much or your emotions are unreasonable or your um, emotions are illogical or your emotions don't matter to me, which is huge. So what's really going to, you know, get someone with an anxious attachment triggered is less, well, it, I don't want to say less. Um, for some people, you know, we're going to see all of these posts about if they don't text back, things like that, right? But there's this other piece of it where you hear from your partner, you're just making things up. Or, you know what, you need to deal with your feelings on your own. Or you're seeing it the wrong, all wrong. You know, or you're just being dramatic. And so that's going to really trigger the heart of someone with an anxious attachment uh, profoundly because of growing up in environments where those were the repeated messages. And that is emotional abandonment. And if you look at things like borderline personality disorder, which is this really extreme version of, you know, what I consider attachment insecurity, uh, the number the only the only thing that's really common in studies to the childhood environment of people who develop borderline personality disorder what would you think it would be serious abuse you know something like this but it's it's emotional invalidation just an environment of emotional invalidation is enough to create major problems yeah. I love that you talk about emotional abandonment. It's something that I've spoken to before. And I think that you know, I can relate to it. Like I, I lean more anxious and having that fear of like, are you going to be there when I need you? Even though you're physically here, this sense of, am I going to be left alone with these big feelings? Right. And I think that can be really terrifying. And when we see expressions of that you know, various cycles in anxious avoidant dynamics where you might have someone on the other side who goes the other way and withdraws or pulls away or becomes very defensive, uh, then having that sense of, you know, I'm scrambling to try and get engagement from you. And even in this moment when my emotions are getting really big and I'm visibly distressed, for you to still be kind of denying me what I need, <laughs> Uh, that can feel like fuel on the fire, right? It's like, it's no secret that I need you in this moment. Uh, so surely if you loved me, you would be responding to me the way I want you to respond. And I think, as you say, that can be really like viscerally terrifying, distressing for someone with more anxious attachment. Definitely. And then we have this other side, which is the person who's not showing up, right? And so what does it look like? It looks like they don't care. They're disengaged. They're, it's, it's irrelevant. I'm irrelevant to them. Um, but really what's happening is they're getting overwhelmed with, I don't know what to do. I never learned how to help myself in these emotionally hard places. So I really don't know how to help a partner. And the way that I did learn to help myself was to shove my feelings away, just make them go away or, or go into this fix it place in my brain. And so what I know to do to help you 
is what I've learned to do to help me. And, you know, really not recognizing the impact of, well, you should just see it differently or, you know, let's just do whatever, whatever I have to do to make these big emotions go away that I don't know how to deal with. And then eventually they get overwhelmed to the point that none of, none of my strategies are working here, which doesn't make sense because they work with me. Everything I say Uh, or don't say makes this worse, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So then they shut down and, and it's like, where does this start a chicken or the egg who, you know, it, it doesn't start anywhere. It just is, you know, I mean, as far as the way they're interacting with each other. Yeah. And it's something that I'm very, uh, that I take very seriously in, in my work is not kind of creating a hierarchy of these different expressions and, you know, not, I think particularly avoidant attachment gets a really bad rap. Um, in a lot of online content. And it's something that I'm really, um, you know, quite passionate about balancing that and giving people more kind of inroads into understanding that in a compassionate way and recognizing, you know, everything that you just articulated makes perfect sense, right? In the environment in which it sprung from, um, that's a really adaptive response. And and it really is. Um... It really is empowering, I think, for, you know, somewhere along the line, I'm not exactly sure where, but anxious partners got this idea that, you know, they have these needs, the avoidance can't show up for these needs. And so it must be the avoidance that's the problem. But how disempowering is that, right? To think that you really can't do anything, that you're just kind of a victim to what this other person is doing. So I love that you said you balance this out. Because it's so important because when anxious partners really start to learn, there's a lot of work they can be doing to shift the environment. It is a, it's a much, I think a much more empowering message. I agree. I think that uh, as much as it might be a hard pill to swallow for people to recognize their part in the dynamic and what they need to take responsibility for, I think that it's ultimately much more empowering place to be than kind of throwing your hands up and saying, well, you just don't meet my needs or you always do this Mm -hmm. or I'm doing all the work and you're the roadblock. Um, And, you know, I think coupled with the tendency for anxious folks to persist in light of all of those, you know, criticisms Mm -hmm. or judgments, it's not like they're reaching a a decision of this isn't working for me and walking away. It's like, this isn't working for me, but I'm going to sit here and protest about it. Exactly. I'm going to keep watering the plant with gasoline. Yeah, exactly. And then feeling really frustrated and overwhelmed and, you know, why does this keep happening to me? You can water the plant with gasoline. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can pivot to talking about your book, Secure Love, which is probably by the time this episode comes out, will be out in the world. So anyone listening, please go ahead and order a copy if you haven't already. Um, Tell us about the book. What's kind of the premise? What do you take people through? Well, I wrote it um, for a a lot of different reasons. And every time I'm interviewed, I give another different reason, whatever comes to mind. But, you know, I have a I have seen a lot of success in doing the type of work that I do with couples working with attachment theory in my private practice. And when I started my Instagram account where which is where I started putting out information, um where I was starting from is look, there are a lot of people out there who just don't have access to couples therapy and don't have access to, you know, quality couples therapy 
And how can I kind of help people um, that that are in that position in the best way possible through, you know, social media platform uh, and, and kind of tie attachment theory all together? Like, let's put it into context. How is, you know, you get, you have an anxious attachment, you get your partner has an avoidant attachment. Now what, you know, how does it show up between the two of you? And, and more importantly, how is it creating these negative communication cycles, which is basically the anxious attachment partner being anxious and the avoidant attachment partner being avoidant. And now they're reinforcing all of these insecurities. They're not, you know, they're speaking in a way that can go from kind of a normal conversation into a big fight or, you know, and they're not getting problem solved. You know, those, those kinds of negative cycles block actual resolution to our talk about finances or our talk about parenting or sex or politics or whatever it is. And in the process, they're also hurting each other emotionally and reinforcing the already insecure attachment. So I'm kind of leading with, hey, here's attachment theory. Here's a very detailed description of anxious attachment, the childhood environment, how it looks in adulthood. Here's how it shows up in these negative cycles. Here's what you can do to interrupt them when they happen. Here's what you can do to prevent them. Here's what you can do to repair them. And then, you know, just lots of practical skills, lots of of actual words, scripts, you know, if you don't have the words and you haven't learned these words yet, it's just a concept and it can be really hard for people to put concepts into actions, especially in these, you know, moments when they're kind of like on the spot and you got to say it the right way or, um, and then, um, you know, some couples are are blocked by attachment injuries, which is something I have to work with in my practice too, which is kind of like these added layers of attachment wounds, you know, major breaches of trust, moments when you really needed your partner to show up for you and they weren't there. And a lot of times these old wounds are blocking their ability to even put new practices into place, put new communication into place, because there's all this resentment and mistrust built up. So then I'm going to kind of say, hey, you know, here's here are some ideas. Here's here are the way that healing conversations go. Here's what a healing conversation looks like. Um, now that you can kind of you kind of learn to do that outside of these negative cycles, um, let's see if we can start healing some of this, which is only going to make the work easier. Uh, then then just goes into just different uh, other considerations like um, mental illness, sex, um, substance abuse, anything that's kind of, you know, layers to relationships that are more than just standard fighting about money. Uh, and then I have a whole chapter of scripts. Just, you know, you need to bring up a hard topic to your partner. Here's some things to say. Your partner doesn't want to go to therapy. Here are some things to say. And just, you know multiple examples to just to give people, you know, the words and it's not just the words, you know, we need to make words our own, but I also break down the, the, the phrases into elements, which is, this is why I validated at the beginning of this sentence. This is why I ended it in this way. So if you're not, if you're not wanting to use my words and sometimes they aren't even my words, they're just as neutral as I can be for people who are reading the book that all speak from, you know, in different ways, different cultures. Um, it's, it's just like, well, let's just help you integrate the elements here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's immensely helpful for people who, as you say, just don't have 
that reference point. They've never, maybe they grew up in a family system where things weren't talked about or they weren't talked about in a productive mm-hmm. way. Uh, and you've just not had that relational environment, you know, so either true. directly or you've never had it modeled. Uh, so I think exactly. that having, yeah. having those scripts can be so helpful. Something that comes up for me as you say that is I hear from a lot of people with more anxious patterns who, who very much want the scripts uh, and something that I'm always minded to add in as a caveat is, you know, here's a script um, and you kind of have to surrender a little to <laughs> the messiness of being in relationship. Uh, and I think that there can be this sense of if I say the perfect thing in the perfect way, then I'll get the outcome that I want. Uh, and if I do my part, then you have to do your part. You have to respond in the way that I want you to. And if you Absolutely. don't, then I'll go straight back into, well, you're the problem. Right. <laughs> is that something right. that you say? I do, I do address this pretty, pretty extensively in the book, which is this change really does need to come from your heart. If it's coming from a place of, well, I'm only doing this because I really want to you know, control what you're going to do, then it's really not change at all. So we, we really have to shift that heart place, which is, why I put the scripts at the end of the book, not the beginning <laughs> of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it is. It's funny. It can almost be like a a covert extension of the cycle when it is. Know, it is. That's yes. perfectly worded. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> rather than really um rather than shifting it, there can be ways that that cycle can um come back in. And I think that that is a really challenging edge for people. Um something that I still you know, notice come up and I have to keep tabs on is that story of like one person trying, extending the olive branch. And then if they still get some sort of defensiveness or their partner doesn't immediately, you know, become a different person and respond totally differently, uh, then it can spiral back. Uh, What would you say to people in that like kind of realistic expectations around how this change happens? Well, I do address, this is another topic I do address extensively in the book, which is, you know, we're, we're looking at the big picture here. We're, we're looking for the end. The, the lo- this is a long game. Um, when you start this work, there really are no guarantees that, you know, you can put the right term coin into the vending machine and push the button and you're going to get the bag of chips, right? Um, we have to look at it. The, the mindset has to be one I really want to be the person I want to be in the world, right? I want to be a person who can communicate myself um, in the healthiest way possible, can can kind of regulate my emotions before I deliver my messages. Um, and, and if you look at it that way, it's you can't lose, right? Because every time you try something new that's um, going to help you grow as a person, that's a win, even if your partner doesn't respond in the exact way that you would like. Now, of course, we all really need and want for the relationship to be close, for our partner to be able to respond openly and positively to our shifts. But um, in most cases, that's not going to happen right away. It's a matter of environmental shift, second order change. So first order change is I'm just going to start delivering my messages in a new way. Uh, second order change is when the environment starts to become new and you have to do a lot of consistent repetitive first order change before second order change starts to become, uh, you know, 
um, an, a natural way of being for both partners. And, you know, most of the couples out there that are working, they aren't necessarily working parallel to each other, growing at the exact same rate. Um, so your, your job as a partner isn't to ca- kind of make your partner grow. You want your partner to grow. You crave your partner's growth. You need your partner's growth for closeness in the relationship. But your real job is to do your part to clean up the environment. And when we have clean environments, and if one partner can start kind of get the getting the ball rolling on that process and putting emotional safety into the relationship, even when the other partner isn't able to right then, that, you know, people are their best selves when they feel safe. People start to reflect when they feel safe. So if your partner's going, I refuse to go to couples therapy, couples therapy is for people who are about to get divorced. You know, the typical anxious response to that is what? I, you don't care about the relationship. I'm the only one doing the work here, right? Well, that's not really safe because it's not really taking into account the other partner's very legitimate concerns. If the other partner has this idea that, if we go to couples therapy, we're going to end up getting divorced because I have numerous examples of people in my life who are divorced, who ended, you know, who went to couples therapy. So my nervous system is kind of wired around the idea that this isn't safe. That needs to be held and validated, right? Yes, the ultimate goal is to get the help. I want that for the couple as much as the anxious partner, but that avoidant partner really needs space to hear you know what? That makes sense to me. It really does. I mean, I, I believe that we should go to couples therapy. We're in a bad spot. We can't seem to get out of it on our own. But at the same time, if you have seen multiple people go to couples therapy and ended, end up getting divorced, of course, you don't want to go down that road. That's a threat to you. And I really do get that. You know, and then, and then maybe some space later to kind of insert your opinion. That is going to lead that avoidant partner into self, there's a much better chance it's going to lead them into self-reflection more than just pushing their needs to the side. And then what do people do? They usually double down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's um, a lot. That was no, a lot. I, Sorry. No, I think that, no, it's, it's really important. And it's something that I was going to ask you about, like this idea of you know, almost invariably there's one partner who's more know, proactive and wants to do the work and has certain meanings associated with that. And I think for more anxious people, it's like, because I care about our relationship, it's very important to get ahead of all of the problems. It'd be, you know, (laughs) plugging all of the, even the tiniest little leaky hole in the boat, let's talk about it and, you know, make Mm -hmm. a plan and do this all the time, right? Process. Uh, For more avoidant partners, like doing the work can have a very different meaning and association and it can feel like, there's always something wrong. Right? There's always something wrong and you're always unhappy with me. And we you know, deal with that thing. And there's another thing. Uh, and that can feel really, that can kind of chip away at their, you know, sense of self, their sense of like, am I doing a good job as your partner? Um, and when there's just really different conceptions of like what what it means to do this kind of work in a relationship what it means about you as individuals what it means about your connection then I think when we project what it means for us onto them and go well it's important to me to do this work because I care about our relationship so much and you don't want to do it so you mustn't care about our relationship 
then we cause ourselves a lot of pain, right? Um, whereas I think when we can, and it's so much easier said than done in those moments of, you know, hurt and when we're so genuinely invested in a solution that we believe is the right one, um, but validating someone's resistance or defensiveness and getting curious about it and going, okay, what must this be about for you? Like what might be underneath your resistance and how can I feel into that in a way that I can try and understand it rather than just making you wrong for it? Um, because I think, as you say, it's like, if I make you wrong for it, is that going to open you or close you? It's going to close you. <laughs> and that's going to get me, you know, again, like we don't want to be always acting from a place of like, you know, getting what we want from someone. But I think you can also look at that and go, what's the natural consequence of me, you know, blaming and shaming you for the way that you genuinely feel about this thing. That's a really big issue. Um, you know, I think someone doubling down, as you say, and digging their heels in is that's a really understandable natural consequence of feeling like you're under attack. And I, I can also imagine, you know, you as a couples therapist that a lot of people with more avoidant patterns would have this fear of like, you're going to kind of drag me to the principal's office and like Absolutely. sit me down and have someone yes. just like bolster your side of the argument. So I'm going to be under attack on yes. multiple fronts. <laughs> that is so true. And I could have used that as an example. And I definitely use that in the book too, which is their avoidant partners or anybody who doesn't want to go to therapy. They have really good reasons, you know, for not wanting to go. It doesn't mean at the end of the day, you know, sometimes the conversation at some point might need to get to look, this relationship is in a really bad spot. It's not working for me. And we're either going to have to go or I don't know what, but kind of setting a little bit more of a firmer boundary around it. But we need to just lead with just figuring out and validating your perspective because it makes sense on some level. Even if it's, I don't agree. I don't think that's, you know, you're, you're, I don't agree with your opinion. Um, the emotions behind that opinion are always valid. and to your point, when you're approaching it in that way, you are actually working on the relationship. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that being able to have that conversation and say, you know, I understand why this feels, might feel a certain way for you. Um, for me, like I, I feel like, I think I've seen you reference this before and I talk about it as well. It's like shifting into that this is a problem that we are facing together, right? The things that exist in our relationship um, feel bigger than our ability to solve them at the moment. Um, and and clearly like what we're doing isn't working and it's tiring mm -hmm. and it's exhausting. And speaking to some of those, what are likely to be shared experiences of the problem, you know, mm -hmm. this, this really sucks. I hate feeling disconnected from you all the time. I hate feeling mm -hmm. like we're always at each other's throats. Um, mm -hmm. And I just don't know what to do anymore uh, because yeah, it feels like the help. things we're trying aren't working. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that shifting into that immediately just brings the temperature down a bit. It really does. It really does. It opens, like you said, opens people up. And, you know, I'm in the business of behavior change, but I'm in the business of getting to that behavior change with open hearts. And that, that comes from communicating in a healthy way. There's no way around it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just, as you say, it's, it's about creating safety. And I think we have to really 
have that front of mind, you know, is mm-hmm. at all points in relationship, like is the thing that I'm about to do, you know, all of my default modes of being in relationship, is that mm-hmm. likely to contribute to or detract from the safety of the person that I'm in relationship with or the broader environment mm-hmm. and culture of our relationship? Uh, and I think when we ask ourselves that and kind of pause and, and check in, so many of the things that we do on autopilot, if we have more insecure patterns, uh, wouldn't pass that test. <laughs> They're about, you know, our safety, but from a very survival-driven place that's um, probably not well suited to the kind of relationship that we really desire and are trying to build. Absolutely. Yes. It's it's actually blocking that relationship that you're longing for. Yeah. So something that I'm curious about is how much of this work do you think, you know, in terms of insecure attachment and repairing and and moving towards a more secure relationship, is that work that you think people can do solely in a relational context or is it, you know, doing your own work and doing it relationally? Um, Is it sort of just, you know, whatever presents itself to you is an opportunity to do that work? I think so. I think that you you do uh, probably the most effective way to look at it is every every interaction with a person. It doesn't really matter, you know, if it's the clerk at the market or your partner. You know, every interaction has the potential to trigger you, right? And it's your triggers that that's where the work lies is when you're triggered, and ultimately the work is. When you're triggered, what are you going to do from that point? Are you going to do something? Are you going to snap at the clerk at the market and then feel bad about yourself for the rest of the day? Are you going to snap at the clerk in the market and then forgive yourself and make, help yourself make sense of that and think about what you may have done differently? Are you going to you, sit, take that moment when the clerk snaps at you and step inside and, and take a moment to go, hmm, what's going on with me? Okay. I'm feeling kind of you know, um, disrespected right now, but, but I'm going to choose to not show up in a way that I don't want to be in the world. And so if we just take that into the relationship, I mean, every interaction gives you the opportunity to grow every interaction, but you don't need to be in a romantic relationship to examine your triggers. We have relationships with family members. We have relationships with friends um, I do think it's important to have someone in your life that's a secure attachment for you, whether that's a therapist or someone that you meet at, you know, an Al-Anon group or a friend who is is dependable and can be there for you in kind of a good enough way. Um, when we get that dependability and that support, that emotional support, uh, it does, it, you know, it's co-regulating to our nervous systems and it does help us grow as a person, right? But I think it's it's like you said, it's just you're you're taking every opportunity to to grow and to do start doing things differently with your feelings. Yeah. And a lot of it is really kind of mundane and unglamorous, right? I think that people expect yeah. like healing to be this big dramatic moment of epiphany. It's not, yeah. <laughs> but as you not. say, it's just like chipping away. It's like a, it really you know, is. putting a coin in the yeah. jar a day at a time. Uh, it is. Then, I mean, I go on walks with my dog and I, and I start noticing these feelings of like, oh, I just want this, you know, normally I love walking, but sometimes I'll think, I just want to get all this stuff done. I just want to, I wish this walk was over, you know, 
And then I, and that's an opportunity for me to check in and say, what's going on right now that this sense of urgency is getting in my way of enjoying this walk, enjoying this time out here and being present in nature. And that can help me sort of reground myself. And now the walk becomes this more pleasurable experience instead of just getting in the way of, you know, my compulsive need to work. So how does that show up in my relationship? Well, I have just taken that moment to practice getting into my body, finding that, you know, sense of urgency that kind of shows up in my chest, um, paying attention to that, soothing it, and then kind of being able to go into a different place in my heart, you know, where I'm more present. So the next time my husband triggers me, I have had that practice going into my body like that. And now because I've practiced that in these other parts of life, it's easier for me to step back and go, all right, what's going on? You know, what about what he said is kind of stirring me up inside? And how can I kind of ground myself and get more present and and show up in in the healthiest way possible? That's not going to lead us down this rabbit hole of a negative cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you share that. I think having that capacity to pause and it is such a practice just to pause and go, huh, Mm -hmm. how interesting that this thing is Mm -hmm. stirring this response in me. And I think as Mm -hmm. soon as we do that, we sort of rise above it and we, you know, create that distance that allows us to observe it and then maybe Mm -hmm. gently question it. And it just feels less all consuming and true. (laughs) And I think that when it feels less all consuming and true, uh, then we're not so propelled to just act from that place. Um, which so often, as you say, is is this kind of heightened, you know, dysregulated place of, you know, I have to do something or, you know, um, you know something dissociative, yes. but it's just like I, I lose the ability to kind of bring myself back when I can't see what's happening. And so whether it's like, you know, walking the dog or waking up in the morning and, and noticing some anxiety, being able to turn towards that mm-hmm. you know, with a level of like, huh, interesting. I'm feeling anxious today. What might that be about for me? And what do I need? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how can I support myself to feel a little bit more grounded or a little safer in my body or whatever it might be? Um, I think that process is so, so repairing in in our own self-relationship, right? It's like, oh, I can, I can tend to myself in those uncomfortable moments or those big moments. Even when What's going on around me might not be perfect. I'm still able to stay with myself. And I I think, you know, this is important too. And you kind of touched on this earlier, which is these are subtle shifts, right? My my walk isn't going from, oh my gosh, I just want to get home to, oh, Zen, this is such a glorious walk. You know, it's just going into this step of a little bit more present. And I think Sometimes people do this work and they kind of expect to go from one extreme to the other. And and we're really not. We're just trying to kind of, we're just trying to feel better, you know, whatever better looks like. It isn't this glamorous big shift. Sometimes it's just a little more, <laughs> more <now> subtle. healed. <laughs> yes. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true. Such a big part of it is like changing the way we relate to ourselves and our feelings as well you know Mm -hmm. I work mostly with anxiously attached people and it's like you know on the other side of this work does that mean I won't experience anxiety anymore in my relationships it's like no (laughs) sadly not that's a human thing um but I think just like having a level of um 
you know, openness to the full spectrum of experience and the messiness of, of being human and being in relationships. And mm-hmm. I think really critically, like trusting in our capacity to hold ourselves through that and to navigate whatever that might look like rather than fearing the big emotions because we don't trust ourselves to experience them and we think, oh, no, if that happens, I won't be okay. And so I have to just frantically try and prevent any of those. Oh, so true. So, so And then it's just such an exhausting way to live. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And it's kind of ironically your, your whole life becomes about the thing you don't want to happen, right? It, it, it really takes up does, so much bandwidth. Right? It does. And then you've created the self-fulfilling prophecy um, because you're having a hard time trusting your future self to handle when things don't go well. And if we can do nothing else in our line of work, it's helping people develop that trust. You know, I can learn to handle my own feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of surrendering to the uncertainty of it all, right? Even... Mm -hmm. Even secure, healthy relationships are going to have hard times and they're going to have bumps in the road. And I think having this, yeah. you know, very idealistic perception of, you know, if I can, again, like control for all of these things and I'm going to eliminate, like totally de-risk my relationship to the point where I won't have to ever feel hurt or disappointed or you know, any of those things. I won't ever have trust broken um, and like, mm-hmm. that's the, the bar that we're setting, I think again, is unrealistic and it's it really kind of setting is, ourselves up to fail. We are. And you know, the, the growth lies in the ruptures, right? So if, if we, I would never want couples to not have ruptures because that's how they learn to kind of take it to that next step. Maybe this this is a topic that we haven't been addressing, and so now it's kind of overwhelming our coping mechanisms, and we kind of, you know, got lost in that negative cycle, not being our best selves. Well, you know, coming back together in that repair process opens up space for the vulnerability that was tapped into that might be surrounding this hard topic, you know, deeper layers of our fears and who we are, um, it, and it provides opportunity to bond and become stronger. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I see, when I see couples, I see this, you know, these patterns and they're, they're going along and their relationship is getting better. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, they're feeling so confident and out of nowhere, they have this big fight. And almost always, once we work through whatever that big fight was, there's a big growth spurt. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, it's also like giving ourselves a lot of grace and not treating that fight as like, oh, it's a major regression in our, in the trajectory that we've been on. I think recognizing the absolute inevitability of these ruptures um, and kind of working that into our expectation Mm -hmm. of what it means to be in relationship with someone because Mm -hmm. it's messy, right? It's like, Two people it coming is. together with all of their own stuff and, you know, yes. kind of two lives and we're trying to build something together. Like, of course, we're going to stumble. Of course. But like, of course who's the person are. I want to stumble with and get up with and, and kind of do that messy yeah. work of of rebuilding? I think that's really the much healthier mindset around it rather it than. It really is. It's so much more realistic and the expectations are are 
more appropriate and it's like as long as we don't have we don't want that messiness to take over the relationship and define the climate there's mm-hmm. so much value in that messiness so much value yeah, yeah i mean absolutely. a lot of the partners that i see are um some of them are actually struggling not so much because they grew up in a high conflict household but because they grew up in a no conflict household so now they get into a relationship with an, in a norm, more of a, a norm, which is, hey, we don't see eye to eye of, about everything. And so what they experienced growing up was that usually it was like one partner who was making all the decisions. And the reason that there wasn't conflict is because one partner had all the power in the relationship or they switched power, but still somehow this couple, these parents managed to just not have overt conflict. So what happens to someone who doesn't experience their own parents having rupture and repair? Then now they think that these ruptures that are now happening in my relationship, there must be something wrong. They have very little skills to actually repair the situation. So we do want some adversity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a really important point. It's something I can relate to. In, In my family, there wasn't a lot of like loud conflict mm-hmm. fighting, but I was definitely acutely aware of when there was tension. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that then for me has, you know, I, I developed in that environment where I'm now very sensitive to, you know, energetic shifts in a dynamic and can experience those. And I've had to do a lot of work around it. Like, experience those as really threatening and as some precursor to something very bad, um, something that's really going to rock the boat and that feels, you know, quite threatening to my system. And so having to kind of disentangle all of that, you know, body memory that says like, oh, this is bad and you need to kind of get on the front foot and, uh, you know, figure out what the problem is and, and stop it before it becomes something bigger um, you know, there's a lot of really, just as you talk, I'm just feeling that anxiety in my system when you're in those situations and you know, there's this tension, but it's not being talked about. Yeah. That can be, God, I mean, sometimes that can feel worse than actually hearing people fight. Absolutely. And I think it creates, it does create that hypervigilance to like, there's something, you know, the elephant in the room and it's something that's still Mm -hmm. now really, I have such a strong reaction to is like, there's a thing that's being avoided. You know, there's a conversation that's being avoided or an issue that's being avoided. And I have such a visceral reaction to that perception um, because it, it has all yeah. of the weight of, of that history behind it. Um, well, so what's coming to mind, it's interesting if you, I'm sure you're familiar with the strange situation, the original, I, I don't know if you re- remember this piece, but you know, the, the, the children who were labeled as anxious attachment were crying and they were kind of inconsolable when they got triggered. And, um, you know, the mom was kind of anxiously trying to calm them down, but it took, it took an extended period of time compared, compared to the babies with secure attachment. The avoidant children, on the other hand, were just blank. They didn't show much emotion at all. They weren't showing any signs of distress. They just kept playing with the toys, but it was the avoidant children who were more physiologically aroused even more so than the anxious children. So there's, there is something to be said for at least with anxious attachment, that energy is, is somewhat getting expelled, you know, not that, you know, it's all, it's all got its downsides in different ways, but I'm just thinking of you 
sitting there as a child and know you didn't grow up in this high conflict home, um, but yet you still have this sense of anxiety and it probably took you a while in your life, I'm guessing, to to recognize, hey, that was painful too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think having that, um, being able to really honestly look at you know, the, the environments that we grew up in, not in a way that's trying to like lay blame or, or create, mm-hmm. you know, the trauma that wasn't there, but, but to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That had an impact. <laughs> that kind of makes sense Yeah, that, you know, Absolutely. this grew from that yeah. and that I adapted in that way. And, and that made a lot of sense in that environment, but maybe that's not serving me well mm-hmm. in this new environment that I'm trying to create. I think yeah. finding that middle road is, is really valuable in, in doing this work and having, more context for ourselves and the way that we show up in relationships. Yeah. So true. I love, I love how you said, you know, you're not looking for problems, but you are looking at the problems that might still be alive today. And, and I, and I say this in the book too, it's like, look, I'm not trying to take away your happy childhood memories or your love for your parents, you know, um, at all, all the, all of it can be true. You know, you can have, you can look at your child and say, Hey, I was basically a happy kid. You know, I felt loved. I felt supported. And here are some things that maybe didn't go well that are still kind of getting, that are getting in my way in this relationship. And, and some people have the other experience where they're like, no, it was absolutely, absolutely awful. I felt horrible. You know, um, all of it can be true. You know, there's no, there's no one, one thing that we can say, you know, you have to have this set of trauma in order to be suffering now. Mm, yeah, that provides a nice segue. I was going to finish by asking you a very uh, self-interested question because I know that you have, do you have five kids? Six kids. Six, six, six kids. kids. Yeah. I'm six months pregnant with my first. And oh, so my I'm so very curious. It is very <laughs> exciting. I'm very curious to ask you, you know, coming from all of this work um, and obviously with having six kids what would you say is you know kind of attachment how how has doing this work I suppose influenced the way that you have approached being a parent (laughs) well it it dramatically influenced the way that I am a parent I mean just dramatically I mean I started off on a really bad foot um you know this information wasn't available to me I was not in the field at the time I did not grow up in a home with um, much positive modeling and you know lots of stuff there. Um, so when I had my first son, I was just dead set on figuring it all out. But I was reading all these parenting books, which this was two thousand one, so they weren't you know as as progressed as they are now. And I it, a lot of them were just kind of giving different contradictory information. So I just I felt like an absolute mess. I did not know what I was doing, um, and I definitely did not get at all the emotional support piece. In my mind, it was like, you you create a structured environment, you send them to the right school, you feed them a really healthy diet. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom and you just kind of put all these things in, you know, to the recipe and, and everything works out. Um, but my kids were really lacking in emotional support until I went a little bit before going back to grad school, I started discovering work on self-compassion and that was a real shift for me. And then from there that got me into attachment theory. And, um, before that I started, you know, doing more of that attachment parenting style, which seemed to be very helpful for me as far as 
bonding. But um, my kids are all teenager. Well, they're 12 to 22. So teenage, young, preteen to young adolescent. And I, I just, you know, the, the relationship that I have with my children is profoundly healthy. It is probably the biggest achievement I think of my life is, is what I have been able to create with my kids. I, I just, I have it down. I know how to be emotionally supportive. I know how to be validating. I know how to get them to understand themselves on a deeper level. And for anyone out there who, you know, has kids that you have had strained relationships with, or you feel guilty because you hear all this attachment information and we're always sort of blaming the parents, right? Um, there is a way to turn it around. Just keep keep going with this information. Keep going with learning. Truly, it all boils down to learning how to be emotionally supportive. And I, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's it's funny. I, I wanted to ask you because people have been asking me and while I have my ideas about you know, how I plan to approach parenting, you know, knowing what I know about this work, I'm also very ready to be humbled because I think that um, yeah, you know, you going into yeah. it, like you know, ideals are one thing, and I'm sure the reality of it will be challenging and, and beautiful and and surprising in so many ways. Um, something that I keep coming back to for myself is like. Um, you know, safety, factual safety versus the perception of safety. And I think for, you know, babies, infants, children, like the perception of safety and frankly adults <laughs> is so much more like rich and important in having that really felt sense of security. Um, and I think so much kind of more traditional parenting stuff is just about like, is the baby factually safe, right? <laughs> Do they have their physical needs met rather than all of that emotional nurturance and validation, which is like, do you feel that? Do you perceive yourself to be safe? And really leading with like, what what would a child be wanting from me in order to feel safe in this moment with whatever behavior they're presenting, I think is a really, um, you know, helpful kind of North Star on a lot of decisions around that. It's so true. I mean, we d we really do need to put emotions first. And I think in this culture, we're putting achievements first. We're putting school first, we're putting sports first, and even maybe physical health sometimes first, which is, as we know, all those things are wonderful and important. But what needs to happen first is emotional safety, truly. Um, you know, the, the parents that I've worked with um, throughout the years that have become parents as we're doing this work or after they've done all this work, uh, just, where's my blanket? Um, they have, I have seen them be very successful from day one. So there, there is hope, you know, you know, so much. I, I just want to reassure you that what I see is that people who are going into parenting, doing this work, that the, the experience is just so pleasurable for them because they get to feel so successful. And it, you know, for me, when I was, um, had my first, I was, I was learning, oh, you have to let them cry it out. They've got to be on the sleep schedule. I mean, to this day, I have PTSD symptoms around listening to my son cry. I just horrible memories, but you know, and then, and with my third, I learned this attachment parenting where I was carrying her in a sling and sleeping with her. And to me, that was a beautiful experience. Not that everybody needs to take it that far, but for me, that way of living was far less exhausting than the other way. 
I was getting sleep at night. I felt a felt sense of emotional. Everything just felt safe and right. Um, and then are you familiar with Gaber Mate? Yes. Okay. So have you read his book on ADD? Scattered? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, there, there's a chapter in this book at the kind of at, near the end about parenting. And it's, it feels a little, I don't know if I want to say random, but it, it's a parenting style that he's bringing to life and describing that is exactly the way I've learned to parent. And whenever he's describing it in this book, in, in this ADD book, which it doesn't have to be about ADD at all, this, it, it just, to me, that's the way to go, is that chapter of the Garamante book. And I have seen that way of being with children be so successful. Yeah, I a lot of his stuff around parenting really resonates. He has mm-hmm. a section in his newest book, The Myth of Normal, around parenting, and and there's another one, Hold On to Your Kids, which he co-wrote oh, well, with another guy, which is more direct. Okay, yeah, well, no, it's a, but it's yeah. you know, he's so prolific that he really you know covers such a, sure. a broad scope. But yeah, a, a lot of his stuff is really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and everything well, you describe is sort be of fine. If you're already, <laughs> is hoping again. I said I'm I'm very ready to be humbled, but um, yeah. I, I'm feeling better prepared than I certainly would have been without you know, all of this, all of this work. And sure. yeah, it's an exciting time. Julie, where can people find you? I think I, I suspect a lot of people listening will already be familiar with you, but for those who aren't, um, what's the best way for them to engage more deeply with your work and, and stay connected with you? Well, my kind, my home base, because this is where the, you know I kind of started putting this information out, is is my Instagram account, which is at the Secure Relationship. I also have a website where um, you can go to just see my podcast that I've done, not mine, but guest appeared on um that that's gonna where you're fine that is where you'll find links to the book um i do have a team of therapists working for me coaches actually that work all over the globe um and then my book secure love which is now out not as i speak when this airs uh, you can find it anywhere it's you know all over the world um I owe you different, lots of different places, but I always say, we'll just go to Amazon and it, you know, that seems like an easy, easy one. Um, so yeah, secure love by Julie Milano. I'm really proud, uh, really proud. I, I really think I've put something together that is going to really have a lot to give to the world. And that feels really good for me. But if you don't want to buy the book, definitely go to my Instagram account because all of the information is there. I mean, it's, it's disjointed. It's not as organized, but you know, as you know, my posts are very lengthy, very much in depth. So Instagram account is an actual book. If you don't mind picking around (laughs) a lot and reading the same thing over and over. (laughs) Thanks, Julie. We'll link all of that in the show notes. And absolutely. I I think your, your Instagram is invaluable, but I also very much look forward to receiving a copy of the book. Julie, thank you so, so much for a beautiful conversation. It's been very insightful and I'm sure will be hugely valuable to everyone who is listening. All right. Well, great. Thanks for having me and congratulations. And I'm so excited for you. Thank you. You're glowing. <laughs> now, now it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> well, I think it's because it's the middle of summer here. People keep saying oh. to me that I'm glowing and I think it's just like light sweat, but I'm happy to take the compliment on glowing. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> the word that is reserved for pregnant women. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Thanks for joining me for this episode of On Attachment. 
If you want to go deeper on all things attachment, love, and relationships, you can find me on Instagram at Stephanie underscore underscore rig or at stephanierig.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could leave a review and a five-star rating. It really does help so much. Thanks again for being here and I hope to see you again soon.